I'm Susan Branscombe, and this is Leading She. I want this world to be fabulous, and fabulous takes both men and women. Coco Brown, founder and CEO of Athena Alliance, started the company after she began a small dinner group of women, which grew to 150. She recognized from this group how much support women need from each other, and the seed began to grow, and Athena Alliance was formed. The company was started to help support women moving into C-suites and boardrooms and offers entrepreneurship help as well as assistance with capital investments. Coco cites that only 2% of venture capital monies are provided for women-owned companies. She says it's important to have women on boards not just for the optics and box checking, but women can bring unique perspectives as well as help companies achieve better outcomes in our changed world. What a great podcast guest Coco Brown has been. Today, my guest on Leading She is Coco Brown, founder, CEO, Athena Alliance, based in San Francisco, California. Welcome to Leading She, Coco. Thank you. I'm going to read your bio, and then I'll open it up to questions and uh, have you give us some highlights. Coco Brown serves on several corporate boards, is an advisor and thought leader, speaker and author, and recognized as an expert in shaping the modern boardroom and modern leadership. In her role at Athena Alliance, she helps position executive women for advancement and board opportunities while also transforming the boardroom towards a modern composition model. Since founding Athena in the spring of 2016, Coco has led the organization to a network of over 1,000 C-level women and CEOs from over 150 companies. Coco brings rich experience across Fortune 1000 companies, startups, and nonprofits, in the roles of CEO, COO, advisor, and board member to Athena Alliance. She possesses a unique understanding of the breadth of challenges and opportunities of leadership. She helps empower leaders to execute successfully, working with them to develop the relationship between a company's strategy and its organizational design and environment. In addition to serving on the board of Taos from 2004 to 2014, Coco served as a board director for MentorNet, during its rebranding and product transformation. Prior to heading Athena Alliance, Coco served as president and COO and board director of Taos, a market leader in IT services, serving hundreds of Fortune 1000 companies, including Apple, Cisco, eBay, and Facebook. Coco's company, Athena Alliance, is a community-driven executive education company which provides personalized, exclusive access to on-demand learning, one-on-one coaching, and virtual networking for in-the-know executives. So, Coco, welcome again. Great to have you here. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, as you hear your biography, um, you know, give us some highlights of your career. Well, I spent um, 16, 17 years at Taos, so that's a a big part of my career. And, um, you know, over that, that tenure or uh, that time frame, obviously, there's a lot of, a lot of things, right? Um, including two incredible booms and, and devastating recessions and <laughs> a lot of business transformation, many different roles that I played, um, kind of culminating with running the company. Uh, while my title was president and COO, I was the, the one report to the CEO and the rest reported to me. So um, lots and lots to unpack there. Uh, and then outside of that, you know, my career before Taos um, started really in the human resources side of the business, uh, of, of business, um, kind of following from having gotten a degree in psychology. My 
thematically, my interest in general is really around people. And I believe that every problem is a people problem. And I believe that people are the answer uh, in, in terms of structurally what may be challenging or opportunities in business and innovation, et cetera. And so um, I've always run businesses from the point of view of people as opposed to just product or um, just financial or, you know, sort of people is central. Um, and, uh, and Athena really, you know, kind of the, the third phase, if you will, uh, post house is something that uh, was born in a lot of ways through my challenges and frustrations as the leader of house. I started a dinner group in 2005 so many years ago now that was really the first seed that led to where I am today. So there's a lot to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to talk about Athena Alliance and kind of why you started it. Uh, but I also want to talk about that time at Taos. And and I was in the business at the time. There were a lot of great ups and uh, devastating downs, you know, during the time you were there that I was experiencing in commercial real estate. But Talk about maybe, you know, I mean, there's a lot there, 16, 17 years, but, you know, what were the, what were the gifts of, of being there? What did you learn? And then what were the challenges If you could, you know, summarize it in just a couple of bullet points? Yeah. I mean, I think one of the great gifts of being there is as a professional services and managed services business, you walk into and have the vantage point of many different businesses instead of just one. You know, if I had been an Apple for 16 years as an example, I'm in Apple. But when I'm in Taos, I'm in Apple and Cisco and uh, you know, Exodus in the days when Exodus existed and um, you know, Google uh from inception and LinkedIn from inception. And you know, so you're in all these different companies um as a, a instrumental part of a piece of that business. So our at house, it was the infrastructure side of the business. So anything to do with um, servers and networks and database and security. And, you know, so our customer was the chief information officer. And so you're looking at all these other companies from that lens. And so that to me was fascinating um, to think about and to see how businesses operate, um, to see what they, they're challenged by, to see the themes that oh yeah, you're not very different. Everybody has that problem. Um, those kinds of things. And that was one of the great gifts. Um, another one of the great gifts, I suppose, is um, the, the moment that I was made vice president of professional services. And Taos is a deeply technical company. And I was a psychology major. And also, it's a deeply technical company in a space where almost all of the technical performers are men. Um, so when we had 700 and some consultants in the field, less than 20 of them were women. And, um, and similarly in that realm, similarly in that realm of CIO and, and heads of, uh, infrastructure, the infrastructure side of IT, very, very few women, uh, most of the women were, were much more so on the application side of IT, the business, the business, um, enablement side of IT in that sense. And so those three things made it very unlikely that I would end up running the business. But um, there was a CEO at the time, it was 1999. And Bill Dwyer um, had 
hired a VP of professional services who didn't work out. And that became obvious within weeks. And, and that person was moved on. And uh, Bill gave me the opportunity to uh, represent uh, the whole uh, division that had not been created prior uh, at an offsite. And so I had to go around and figure out what this thing called professional services was by talking to all of my peers and pulling us together into what this other person was supposed to do. And from that, I got the chance to be the vice president of, of that division. And I, I think the big, the big gift there was that um, Bill, you know, after the offsite said, Coco, would you like to run this you know, team? And I said, sure. And he said, well, go think about it and come back and tell me how you'd put it together because it was new. And I came back with an org chart. And at the top of it, there I was, Coco Brown, vice president of professional services. And I could almost feel him gulping. You know, he was like, wait a minute. I, you know, you're a, you're not even a director right now. Like, or maybe I was, I don't, I don't know, but, um, but you know, he hadn't intended to give me that title. And, uh, and I thought, well, the person that didn't do this job, you know, who was asked to leave had that title. So, um, yeah, why not? So he said, give me a few days to socialize it with the rest of the executive team. Um, and then came back and said, all right, we're going to give you that shot, kid. And I was, you know, 28 years old at the time. And yeah. <laughs> and six months later, I came back to him and I said, hey, you know, you gave me a really nice bump, but I'm betting that it wasn't what you were paying James, who I replaced. Am I doing a good job? And he said, you're doing a great job. And I said, well, then pay me what James was being paid. And because I had no idea what to ask for. I just knew that it was probably way higher than I would ask. And so I, I just put it out and appealed to his, you know, sense of like equity, like what's, what's right here. And he came back and he gave me the most outrageous salary bump I'd ever could have imagined. <laughs> so that was a great gift because I, I moved really, really quickly. And, and then, you know, another one I suppose was also a great tragedy, which was we, we declined heavily in, in the dot-com bust. I mean, we were in the center of it. So we crashed from $100 million in revenue to $10 million in what felt like overnight. And I had to orchestrate through three massive rounds of layoffs. And because I was running about two-thirds of the business, most of those layoffs were mine. And um, it was tragic. And, and I a great learning out of it. I remember you said that uh, that was the time around the time when you were made head of the company when it went from 100 million to 10 million, right? Yeah. To uh, revenue. And so here you are heading a company that wasn't what it once was, right? And that had to be challenging, challenging time. Mm-hmm. Super challenging. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I referred to it as pulling the phoenix from the ashes. You know, we were uh, having to stay out of bankruptcy. That was my job number one. Uh, so we went from all these layoffs to now like, okay, we've got to stop the bleeding, preserve the company, close offices all over the country, um, negotiate out of leases. This is sort of touching on your world, right? Negotiate out of all these corporate leases and and build the business back up, differentiate, um, you know, preserve us and, and make some really uh, fundamental, you know, fundamentally different decisions around what the business is going to be so that 
that didn't happen again, that we wouldn't be wiped out in an, in the next recession. Cause what's always, you know, where things don't go up forever, they do go down. So, and we were, we did, we did do a lot better than in, in the next recession. Yeah. Fascinating. I'm sure you call upon something you've learned from those times, probably every day, you know, just in terms of running a company and everything you went through. I would think you, you call upon all of that. I'd like to go on and talk about uh, Athena, I, Athena Alliance. I pulled something from, from LinkedIn uh, where you're talking about Athena Alliance and you say, for so long, we've been shut out. So we're creating our, our own way in. This is where Athena shines. Athena creates a door of opportunity for women to walk through. Uh, so I guess I'd like to talk about why you started Athena Alliance and maybe give us a little bit more specifics about what the company does. Yeah, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll sort of cut to the chase on why I started it. You can probably imagine the why from my experience at Taos, right? It's lonely being (laughs) a woman in that environment. Um, it's challenging, um, trying to figure out how you ask the stupid questions without also having the lens of, being a young woman um, brought to the answer, you know, so I, I started finding other women around me uh, to talk about data status and a strategy with and to talk about um, the evolving role of, of the IT leader and all of those kinds of things. And so I, you know, I sort of, I formed a community that grew and grew and grew and grew um, and was formalized through uh, uh, quarterly dinner you know, dinners that I would host. And so it became a real community of, of 150 some people by the time that I actually started Athena. And women um, or women and women. No, okay, women. 150 women. Okay. Yeah. But it's, so when I left Taos, I stepped down from running Taos in 2012. And at that point, it was about 80 some women in IT, CIOs and VPs of infrastructure. And then at that point, I said, you know what? CIOs report to the CFO. Let's bring them in. Let's bring in the CMO. They're going rogue. You, you know, so I, wanna, I want us to hear from the entire leadership team. And we weren't talking about, woe is women, how hard it is. We were talking about business and business strategy. And, but it was a safe place to do that. And it was a place in which you know, we were amongst um, ourselves, and uh, which allowed us to let down the guard of like, Everybody's looking at me as a woman and, you know, rarely here. So those kinds of things. And so I got a mandate from that community that had become now 150 some women by 2015 um, to solve this problem that uh, we were seeing, which was the sort of final frontier of what we were being locked out of, which was the boardroom. Um, You know, so we were the rare women at the top, but we were still being locked out. And that was that that domain, but also being funded as in, as entrepreneurs, getting the chance to become part of key investment teams that give funding, like all of these different places where new businesses are started, businesses get the capital that they need to scale, and businesses are governed. Right, those are the places where we were being locked out, and so um, so we started solving that problem through Athena and first through a singular focus on getting more women into the boardroom and then on a broader focus of how do women get into the C-suite? How do women get into investing? How do women get into entrepreneurship and, and really expanding into all of those realms? Mm-hmm. Yeah, fascinating. Um, 
Yeah, you, you talk about uh, <clears throat> another thing I found. Uh, you say CEOs and boards need to make sure they are promoting men and women meritoriously, yet equally. And if women make great CFOs, then companies would be smart to promote them to where these talented women belong. And as we know from the staff, you and I have talked about this, I've talked about this, you know, how how in companies that the stats are that companies show better results when there are diverse boards, including women. So talk about where we are in terms of uh, women on boards and, um, you know, give an example maybe of, of kind of the function, what, you know, what you do at a female alliance to make sure, you know, this happens. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, so there's, there's a couple of things. One is, um, the popular media will tell you that women on boards is over 26% now. But the fact is, is that that's in, you know, the Russell 3000 or the Fortune 500. That's in a small portion of boards that actually require independent directors on them. There's about 30,000 companies in the U.S. alone that um, that are private equity backed, um, venture capital backed, ESOPs. I'm on the board of an ESOP, which is employee stock owned as well as public companies, you know, and so that whole realm is much bigger than the Russell 3000. And in that realm, you know, there's places where it's 15%, there's places where there's less than 10% um, women on boards. And it doesn't make sense, you know, this whole issue or this whole statement that that's a pipeline problem, that you don't see enough women at the top, and therefore, that's why they're not on boards is ridiculous for a couple of reasons. One is, A, women are super promotable. As you mentioned, there's um, there's all sorts of studies, for example, from Exactly, which is a compensation management product for sales. So Exactly within their product has um, anonymized data from millions of salespeople and sales commissions. And they have done a study that says, actually, women outperform men as salespeople. Like, so even if you try to get, and there's, there was a study around that, around CFOs as well. CFO companies where the the CFO is the woman outperform companies where not, right? So there's, people argue causality versus, um, you know, correlation versus causation. When you say things like companies perform better when boards are diverse, right? Like, because then you can say, well, how do you know that? Right. But what you can say is, Actually, the companies that have the data can show you, for example, another one, GitHub has, GitHub is a repository of um, software development, you know, code. And it shows that women's code, if you anonymize it, is accepted at a 4% higher rate than men's code. So there's no truth to men outperforming women. There's just no truth to that. It's about, it's about promotion. But then even when you get there, the problem is, is that historically, what we've said is that boards need to be comprised of CFOs and CEOs. Well, that's actually, that's an old model that is, you're, it's, it's increasingly not relevant for today, because what boards are faced with are issues that are issues of the CHRO, of the CMO, of the chief customer officer. And within those spaces, women are you know, 75% of plus of CHROs, they're almost 50% of chief marketing officers, et cetera. So there's no, the other point is, is that there's no um, dearth of women to be available for board seats. So there's no excuse not to have women. Right. Yeah. We talk about uh, women, men being board ready. 
And what are your observations if, if women are listening right now and they're thinking about being board ready or what, what observations do you have about women and their board readiness and what would you say to them and how that might differ from, from men being ready to serve on a board? Well, I think readiness is uh, a couple of things. One, readiness is experiential. So, uh, you know, have you, how often have you been in a boardroom where you're presenting to the board as an executive, where you have actually experience in, in the leadership realm of the business, right? Where, so there's readiness that is about, you know, how much experience do you have, which is why being an executive before you can join a board is logical. You know, you should have executive experience running a business before you join a board. Um, running a business from, you know, any C-suite or, or even VPSVP uh, realm, it, it's not just the CEO or the CFO. The other readiness is about your own personal readiness. It's about whether you, um, you know, have the understanding of what, of the value that you bring to the boardroom and the understanding of the kinds of issues that boards need to uh, address and face and deal with, right? And so those are the sort of readiness factors. But a lot of what I hear from women is this frustration that like, well, men don't have to be ready. They just have to know the right person on the golf course, right? And then they get like tapped. And then so-and-so says, oh, I'm going to retire in three years. You'll take my place, right? Like those kinds of things. And so why do women need quote unquote readiness where the men don't? And what I, you know, always say to that is I think we're, we're limiting our thinking on this to um, a matter of fairness, when in fact, what we should be saying is boards need to be much more sophisticated environments. There's a lot more demanded of boards today than there ever was before. And a board should be a competitive advantage for a business. Therefore, everyone should be preparing themselves for that domain and taking it extremely seriously. So forget what the men are doing and do the right thing, get yourself ready, right? And then the men are going to have to compete with you as opposed to the other way around, because we will redefine the future. Yeah, we, we talked about this when we, uh, on, uh, on our pre-podcast talk, where you have observed and you have some advice for women investing in their careers, whether a woman is 25 years old, 35, 45, you know, we invest in our careers differently than men, or maybe you know, men really invest in their careers and we could learn some things. What would you say about that? How, how should women really invest in their, in their careers? Yeah, I think there's a, a couple things. One is, I think, you know, that there's, there's absolute truth to people who are underrepresented, women, Black people, you know, LGBTQ, people who are underrepresented end up oftentimes working harder to get to where they deserve to be than the people who are represented, right? And that's a universal truth and it's unfortunate, but it's it's an is, you know, that is. And um, and I think embracing it as a um, uh, as something that allows us to also shape the future, right? Like if we're the ones who put in the most effort, we also get to shape the future. I think that's one way of looking at it and saying, okay, so that's that's an is. The things we can learn from men um, is that you know when you are and and this is let's just say the things we can learn from the majority. When you are in a position of majority, you get more comfortable 
with risk. You get more comfortable with the idea of abundance, right? And so you don't operate in a sense of scarcity and you don't operate in a sense uh, as much in a sense of protection of what you have. And and those kinds of things are what lead to the attitudes that we have that women don't help women, that women, you know, sort of hold each other back sometimes or that women aren't risk takers. You know, those kinds of things are both, um, you know, in, in a sense, it's operating from a sense of scarcity. Well, like I was lucky to get here, you know, or I had to work so hard to get here. And so you may judge your other women more harshly than you should. Those kinds of things, I think we should we should pause and think about, you know, just because it was hard for me, should it be hard for her? Um, just because it was scarce for me, should I see it as a scarcity issue or should I see it as an increasing um, abundance? As more of us come into the ranks, there's more abundance and we become more the majority. I think on the risk-taking front, a perfect example, a friend of mine, um, she was a top executive at, at Google and she said, you know, my male counterparts were dabbling and in investing in risky stuff, just you know, tossing a little bits of money here and there. And the wealth creation that they have 10 years later versus mine is astounding, right? And, um, and she's now an investor at an investment firm because she's like, wait a minute. <laughs> but women don't do that, you know, and we should. We should take a little bit more of that, like, play money fun, you know, throw $5 into five different cryptocurrencies and see what, see what happens. We should do that. Yeah, we should, we should take, yeah, yeah. We should take the risk and investing in stocks, building wealth. I've, I've seen that happen over the years for men. In my experience, men tend to do that more than women. Uh, and then investing in golf memberships or coaches, executive coaches, they mm-hmm. you know, tend to hire people to get things done, as you said. And so, yes. you know, I think women, women, women should do that more often. Um, yeah, for sure. We, we absolutely, I hear people sort of agonize over, you know, not spending the money on themselves. And in some ways we do, you know, the $60 pedicure every two weeks or whatever, but like, but in some ways we just don't, you know, in some ways it's like, we won't invest in that executive coach. We won't invest in that club for ourselves. We and but men will see it as not an invest, not a frivolous thing, but an investment. They will see it as like, you know, well, if somebody else does it. I've got more time to do this other thing. Right. Spend, spend a dollar to make two, you know, in some mm-hmm. way. Absolutely. Um, I've been in plenty of meetings where there are 25 men and me. And Mm -hmm. uh, my experience is that there can be a lot of masculine energy, competitive spirit. Let's go get them. Let's do this thing, which may be impulsive and maybe risky. And there's this group dynamic, a social dynamic among the men. Decisions could be made that are somewhat hasty, and I'm generalizing. Um, mm-hmm. And we don't want to talk about general statements. Here's what men do. Here's what women do. Uh, but, but generally speaking, um, and I think corporate boards, when they're considering putting uh, women on corporate boards in the C-suite, sometimes women can bring more of a discerning, thoughtful approach, be less impulsive. Let's think about this thing before we do it. Um, what would you say about this? The the masculine energy and then the more the what would would be considered feminine or let's take take a step back yeah. and think about what we're doing. Absolutely. I mean, I think that this is 
you know, I, I always get nervous about talking about men are like this and women are like that because, you know, those are caricatures and caricatures are fun and, and meaningful because they do exist on a broad brush, but they don't apply to an individual person. Right. And so people don't like to be put in boxes, but at the same time, the reason that those caricatures work for men versus women is because we have these embedded, um, you know, these fundamental embedded attributes that we say, these are masculine attributes and these are feminine attributes. And this has been the case for centuries and across all, you know, essentially all humans, all, all cultures is things like risk-taking and the fight for the win and competition and command and control, as you said earlier, you know, these things are masculine. And then feminine is vulnerability and collaboration and slowing the process to think through the impact for others, you know, sort of the societal play. And, um, and so cooperation, not competition and those kinds of things. And, and so what you have, if you bring the masculine and the feminine um, qualities both into that realm of overarching stewardship of business, into the realm where a collective sits around a table as a board, um, you will have better outcomes, better results, at, particularly in today's world, because today's world is demanding feminine attributes because it is a society now that, you know, is collaborating uh, at a global scale with four generations in the workforce, with gig economy across the globe, with, you know, like there's just, it's so complicated that we can't get away from the fact that you need feminine qualities in the decision-making process and the leadership process of business today. Um, so I, I, I think those are absolutely true. Yeah. You talked about, and we, we talked about this, that in the eighties and nineties, you know, it was command and control competition. You got to be in your office, uh, FaceTime beating the other guy and this tectonic shift, you called it, uh, where mm-hmm. today in business, uh, there is an expectation that it is a different approach. It has to be a different approach if you're going to survive as a business. The soft skills of uh, collaboration, compassion, community vulnerability. So I think it's very interesting that there is a a big shift here. And any company that is doing things like they did in the 80s and 90s with the old command and control way, just I can't imagine that they're going to succeed or survive. No, they're they're not. And it's exactly these big tectonic shifts being that, right, that because largely enabled by technology, um, people have instantaneous access to and and, uh, ability to create voice. And so you, you know, if somebody gets dragged off an airplane, five people are, you know, by the stewards or stewardess, you know, five people are are videoing that and it's all over the web. And now all of a sudden, all the things that the airline said about how people centered they are and how much they care about you and these things is no longer true, right? So it's not true that you can just, you know, businesses can, can just sort of tell you what to think any longer, tell you who they are any longer. We tell the businesses who they are. And that's why conscious capitalism is taking hold in the United States. And and that's why it is increasingly important that we have these feminine qualities in in business, that it's why you're seeing CHROs now no longer reporting to the CFO, which never made sense in the first place, um, but now 
yeah, now reporting directly to CEOs and and why you see chief marketing officers and chief customer officers with so much more spending power and political power in the business. Yeah. I mean, you, you know, we talked about the uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok have all affected business in a way where, as you say, and I quote you, consumers are now in the driver's seat, not companies. Mm-hmm. Com- companies are in the driver's seat. Consumers are. And we have a platform to exchange information in a way we did not have, you know, 10 years ago, five years ago, even. Um, So there's a real power shift um, in media and then the conscious capitalism that companies are expected, even like you say, the oil companies have to be concerned about the environment, you know? So yeah, a total shift. This is really fascinating. And and it's interesting to uh, think about the future here. Uh, we talked about resilience. Um, I grew up with a mom who, you know, when I'm a sophomore in high school, I was sick with a cold. I go to school anyway. She made me go to school anyway. Me too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, you know, you make a commitment. You don't cancel. You suck it up. You do it anyway, even if you don't want to. Um, and I've learned to soften around these, these, you know, messages. But you talk about our society and whatever generation we want to talk about, but just how how it's different now and that uh, people are I don't want to say whining but you know making excuses Mm. not to work like hey I'm not coming in today this or that's going on I mean what do you see there what do you see the shift uh in in our in expectations yeah so back in 99 it was it, it it was a lot of that it was really just um every conversation was around the employee and people were getting, you know, million dollar stock options that became wallpaper. And it, it was, it was just this crazy, crazy time. And now I worry about the same thing. And it's in part similar. It's in part, you know, how many perks and what kinds of perks, but it's all about sort of home concierges and designing home office perks. Um, but nonetheless, it's, um, and, and it's also a hyper focus on mental health and not to be not to be insensitive here because i think the mental health health crisis is real i have you know a 17 year old and a 20 year old my worry in the pendulum swinging on that side of things though is back to what you said about resiliency is what about resiliency at the same time right so i have I have um, very close friends who work for huge, you know, fang companies and who are complaining that they've got workers who say, you know, I just can't go to work today. I don't feel, I'm not feeling it, you know, and um, who just are disappointed by what's going on in the world. And so they just don't have the mental energy for work. And I think I get it. It's tragic. You know, it's tragic what's going on in Ukraine. It's tragic that 19 kids were killed two days ago. It's, these things are tragic and you have to work, you know, and, and that is, that is a real, um, that's a real issue. You know, I, I had a friend who said, I, 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 I can't demand that this person works because HR just tells me I have to be more sensitive. And I think, but the rest of us are working, like, where's the middle ground here? Yeah, it's just like suck it up, get into work. I know there are things that are going on, but you do it anyway. Um, 
I'm not saying people need to come into the office sick or whatever, but I mean, there's got to be a balance. You can't, you can't, uh, you can't tolerate the, the sort of this, you know, I'm, it doesn't work for me. I'm not going to be in because this is going on, you know, and, uh, you know, resi- be, be resilient, do it, you know, get, get in there. Right. Right. You say in a quote I found on LinkedIn that female entrepreneurs, and I know you're, you're focused with the female alliance is to really be an advocate for women to get them on boards and in C-suites. Female entrepreneurs typically start businesses with half as much capital as men. And I'm wondering, I mean, I think I know the answers, but why is that? Is it, is it they're not asking or is it just not available to them the way it is for men's businesses or why, why is that? Well, there's a number of reasons. So, so 2% of venture funding goes to women of billions and billions and billions of dollars. Um, so women start just as many companies as men, but they don't get to scale them. Women have to be satisfied with creating one generational companies or quote unquote lifestyle companies, right? Companies that won't scale beyond them and be multi-generational because a lot of those companies require capital to fund scale. Um, it's very hard to, fu- to scale and to scale rapidly without external capital coming in. And it takes, you know, it takes collateral to, to get capital if you're just borrowing from the bank, right? And then you're borrowing at um, 16, 17, 18% interest. But if you want to get in venture funding, you essentially have to be a man because you know, only 2% of venture funding goes to women. So why is that? It's not because women aren't starting fundable businesses. Um, on the one hand, if they're starting businesses that are, um, are femtech, fem you know, things around women's health or women's interests, um, if, you know, 90% of the people sitting around those tables are men, if 90% of the, the people sitting around those tables are men, then they're kind of looking at it going, really, is there a market for this? I don't know. Like how many, how many, you know, makeup companies can we have? Right. Whereas like, <laughs> you know, so there's some we of need that. a lot of makeup. <laughs> right. There. Right. Well, there's some, some amount of its relatability, you know, like uh, do women really need those feminine hygiene products and, you know, things like that. The other thing is that, you know, uh, um, there was a, there's a great TED talk about this, about research that was done, um, where the the other issue is even if women are creating products where, where the male investors sitting around the table would lean into it, they ask women risk questions and they ask men opportunity questions. And even if there is a token woman investor in that group, she's asked, she's operating the way the men do. And so they'll ask questions around the limitations. And so then the women entrepreneurs are answering questions to combat the limitation question. Whereas the male entrepreneurs are like, yes, let's talk about opportunity. Yeah, the returns. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. Uh, So that's another issue. And then, you know, the third issue, and I've encountered this a lot myself, going out for funding, people will say, oh, well, we already invested in the mom project. And I'm like, Investing in the mom project that has nothing to do. That's about getting women back to work who, who aren't, which is great, but that's, that has zero to do with what Athena does. And it's almost like there's this zero sum game 
sort of attitude, right? Where we can invest in 30,000 cybersecurity products, but only one product. Right. We did, we've done the woman thing. Let's, we checked the box on that one. We checked the box, right? And that's a third really big issue. And I hear it all the time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I bet. We've got a couple more questions here before we wrap, wrap up. This has been great, Coco. Um, as you, as you think about, uh, you've got a daughter that's 17 and, you know, as you think about women in business, a 25 year old woman that's uh, trying to climb the ladder and, uh, do everything she can. You know, there are a lot of things outside of her, her control within her company and what, whatever, uh, people and circumstances. But what would you say to her? I mean, if you had to talk to your daughter, if she was going into business, what would you, if she asked you for advice, because we have to wait for our kids to ask us for advice, right? Uh, what would you say to her if she's going into business? And, um, you know, what advice would you give her? I, you know, be courageous. I mean, get out of your own head. Uh, the, one of the things that I see with young women and girls is sometimes we're our, we're the worst enemy, you know, um, the voice inside our heads that tell us we're not good enough, or we have to be like this, or, you know, we have to have five friends approve a photo before we post it. Um, you know, that there's too much criticism that we give ourselves and we perceive the outside world to be telling us that we should be criticizing ourselves in that way, but we are the ones who choose to take that on. And so I think one of the things I would say is test that, you know, don't, don't, you know, don't, don't be the voice in your head that you would never be to a friend, right? You wouldn't, you're, you're your worst friend. Um, don't do that. And, you know, the other thing is um, don't, you know, sometimes we, we buy in, we're like, oh, well, you know, women have to check. We, we, we have to believe that we meet a hundred percent of the criteria before we'll put our hands forward. Well, what if you just stopped believing that? Like, what if you just said, uh, you know, women only, you know, studies show, let's just rewrite the narrative. Studies show that women believe they only have to meet 60% of the criteria before they put their hands forward. I've just given myself permission to put my hand forward, right? Like, let's rewrite the narrative. Don't buy in. Just because it was or is doesn't mean it's the future. And it was never my future. I mean, or it was never my story. When I got that promotion to vice president of professional service, I didn't say, you know, no, I'm not qualified to go to that offsite when I was, you know, I wasn't qualified to go to that offsite. I didn't say, no, don't give me that promotion. I didn't, you know, I, I didn't say those things. I said, yes, give me that promotion. And by the way, I want the title. And, yeah, here's the orchard and I'm at the top. And six months later, I said, give me the salary. The guy you gave the guy. Right. Perfect. Just yeah, start doing, doing that. It. Yeah. Just do it. Do it. And don't be afraid of doing it. Is, is what you're yeah. saying. Get out of your own head. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Last question as we close out here. What does um, what does the next five years look like for you professionally and personally? What do you hope to accomplish? What's on your bucket list? Yeah. So I, you know, I get really excited about reshaping the world. I know that that is a little, uh, you know, I don't know, like who's one person 
But I would love to see my my whole agenda is accelerating the speed at which women take our rightful place in the top realms of leadership. And it's not it. This isn't a fairness thing. This it's and it's not even an equity thing. It's like I want this world to be fabulous, and fabulous takes both men and women. You know that who would deny that, right? I mean, we have moms and we have dads, and you know, and even where we have two moms or two dads, we have aunts and uncles, and we believe in a village, and we believe that diversity in the lives around us of perspective should matter, and 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 certainly the people who buy from us and who are employed by us are, you know, are and should be diverse. So I am excited about a a world where women are are at the top also and i think that that creates a better world because we um we do bring different things to the table um and that's one piece of it you know i want to accelerate women to the top the other piece of it is i want to then see us help redefine and reshape the top Um, so, you know, make it a very professional place to be, make it a place that is a competitive advantage, make it a place that cares deeply about the interlock between society and business and creates a better world and make it a place where women can thrive, you know, where everyone can thrive, where it's not just businesses need to not be the factory model any longer, you know, where you punch in, you punch out and it's, you know, that's not the world any longer. We need flexibility. We need multitasking. We need the ability to integrate our lives and our work. And women can contribute a lot to that. So those are the things that, you know, I care deeply about and that I'm focused on every day. Um, it's not so much a bucket list as it is a, it's just my marching orders that I wake up with and I I am committed to and and I don't see this as, next year, five years, I see it as ongoing. Oh, I love it. Yeah, I can tell you're passionate about it. I can see that, that this is this is uh, where you want to go. And, uh, you know, it, 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 you, I'm reading your body language and I can see it. This is it for you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Really wonderful. Coco, thanks for joining me today on Leading She. I, I've enjoyed this a lot, getting to know you, doing my research and talking to you. Thank you. Likewise. I really enjoyed this. And it's been, it's been, it's always fun to reflect and talk and, and also try to be provocative. So thank you so much for doing that. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leading She. Please check out many other Leading She episodes, which are wonderful. We discuss challenges these accomplished women have overcome in their careers. Please subscribe to this podcast and rate it and review it. Follow Leading She on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And visit our website, leadingshe.com, where we have ideas and wisdom for women leaders.